Hi, I'm Jess and I'm the oldest. Oi, I'm the oldest. I'm Shtee, I'm the dad and this is actually my podcast. And I'm Tommy, I'm the youngest. Welcome to the podcast. At the heart of hearts, we're all very creative. I've had a very interesting life. You've travelled all over the world. I remember being... Oh, interesting. This is not how I remember this story. story, story, story. Pints are not a good measure for filling Jacobs as fuel. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 19 of Woo! The Podlarks. Amazing. 19 is uh, loads of episodes, so well done us and well done um, everybody else as well in the whole world. Stephen... Presumably you have a story prepared for us. Well, I've got lots of stories. Um, but first, <laughs> a couple of episodes ago, I think, I think it made the final cut. Were we talking about walking down the canal pass to school? Yes, and kicking the, kicking the rings and yeah, making them go down. Yeah, I was wondering what you remembered about school, actually. Because um, I could think of a couple of things about your school that you went to. Um, are we talking primary school? Yeah, we are. Primary school makes me think of cross country. Oh, <laughs> that doesn't sound good. Mainly because mainly I hated it. I hated cross country running, but I really remember just like trailing along behind everyone being like, <laughs> What is it about our family? Because I was just the same. And I think it's probably all those uh, shared genes that we have. <laughs> oh, probably. Dear, oh dear. Hated cross country. Does that mean that in your general feeling about primary school is not a particularly positive one or you can't no no not at all it's just that that that's a big part of my memory but the reason why it's a big part of my memory actually I think is because when I was older when I was sort of like 12 and 13 and I used to really struggle getting to sleep because I would think about how big the world was and how big the universe was and then struggle sleeping what I would do is I would picture the cross-country routes and I would basically sort of run a cross-country route in my mind and then I would fall asleep. <laughs> genius! Oh, genius! Sort of like an early day meditation, I guess. That is so good. Oh, I, listen, I listen, people. I've ever heard that. If, if this, dear listener, if this isn't viral by the time you hear this, then that tip has got to go around the world because, I mean, it's just a winner. <laughs> picture doing a run you really don't enjoy doing and you'll be asleep in no yeah, time. Yeah, honestly, because you're just like, when will this be over? Oh, turns on the sleep. That's actually such a very smart move for someone so young to to sort of yeah, like you say, meditate on that. Um... Well, I think it was because it was the opposite of what used to keep me awake. Because what used to keep me mm. awake was the kind of unknownness of how big the universe was and how we could possibly mm. be here. So then, being very focused on a very specific picturable route yeah that kind you of know how brings you back to sort of context of it all do you know what is actually hilarious i mean both mutz and i can remember you being troubled by that at that time and what is actually hilarious um is that now i mean you you might have been eight or nine or something i suppose something i don't know that sort of age perhaps 12 anyway now at, six, <laughs> at 63 <laughs> I've arrived at that same puzzle of, of why on earth are we here and what, how big is the universe. It doesn't keep me awake, I've got to tell, I've got to tell you. Mm. Well, if, but, you, if it does, just think of a cross-country route. Oh, my word, I'm asleep already. I, oh, dear, oh, dear. <laughs> yeah. It's fun, very interesting on two accounts because uh, cross-country was um, definitely one of the things that I was going to say about primary school memories <laughs> as well because I remember there was a little, well... In my memory, it was actually huge and very steep, but I'd be very interested to see it now as a grown-up and see... The hill? 
the hill out the back of the school. Yeah, it is. It is steep. The, it is steep. It is steep. Yeah, it felt I rem- steep. I, I remember just them making us go up and round it like over and over <laughs> again, like oh. in a lunch break or whatever it was that we did cross country in. And I remember learning at cross country that whoever it was that like ran it way um, taught me that if you get a stitch, you have to put your hands behind your head as if you're relaxing because it opens up your lungs and then you breathe. And I learned that in primary school and I've never forgotten it. Does it work? Because um, a stitch is about not getting enough oxygen to various bits. Everybody mm. say what you need is more oxygen. Um, I don't know if it works, but it certainly makes you feel like you're doing something. And it, it makes it you look work, like you're a runner. I, I, I've run like round here with my hands in the air because I've got yeah. a stitch <laughs> it makes it very weird but it does get the spread of the stitch um but my main the number one thing was dgd ah. which uh was a shti uh catchphrase that was brought to me because apparently i used to i used to get distracted at school and dgd meant don't get distracted I didn't know that was to do with you at primary school. When Steve would drop me off at school, he used to go, don't forget Tommy Bob's, DGD. DGD. And I'd be like, all right, Steve, DGD. I'll DGD today. (laughs) And I'll tell you what's absolutely hilarious again, is that I said that to Mutz this week. Would you believe it, DGD? (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, I've said it. It lives on. I've said it in recent history. It's like like I'm I'm somebody who doesn't get distracted. I mean, who am I to say DGD to anybody? (laughs) But isn't is that not the key of parenting? Is um, Uh, well, certainly your key anyway. Is do as I say, not as I do. Certainly your key. (laughs) It's it's harsh, but very true. Yes. Well, I think I think it's fair. You know, we're all trying to make better versions of ourselves well here's, here's do you, do you, t- you know the other thing from primary school actually just just quickly how could mm. i possibly have not had it as the first thing in my mind the jjj's oh the jjj's mm. my primary school band with uh, two two other mates whose names also began with j the jjj's and there was there was lost to the world probably i think forever now a cassette tape of a recording of songs by the jjj's which which really offered a lot to humanity i think I wish we could find that. I would love to hear hear all of our old classics again. <laughs> yeah, it'll be somewhere, I'm sure of it, because I feel like I've heard it not too... But it could just be my own version singing it again, because it's so catchy that I... Yeah, it was. It's very good. It could be viral. I, I, I just remember that you had um, two head teachers, and the first one I remember was extremely well organised and ran the place like a sort of... Not quite like an army camp, but everything was always in its place. And the culture change when the second one came along who absolutely I, I happen to know from an inside source was hopeless at administration and organization and, <laughs> and the school on that level perhaps wasn't as efficient but the whole culture really changed and they were somebody who who would always sort of catch your eye and have a smile uh, like I, I remember walking into assembly late one day and and the, and the head teacher was at the front talking to the room and as I came to the door he, he stopped and smiled at me and I thought that is just such a, a good thing and you know mm. I, I remember thinking that what sort of school do you want your children to go to is it one that's well organized or one where the head teacher actually knows all the students intimately and smiles at the parents and and definitely the second one is is what I would prefer I don't I don't know what you mm. what you think well oh. yeah definitely the second one yes 100% <laughs> I'm passing this test. I choose the second one. Thank you. Good. Well, that's I've based my life on that because organisation's never been my strong point, but I'll always smile at somebody if I can. So, um, <laughs> seems um, seems like a good 
option. The other thing is that I, I think I remember somebody asked me to teach French to the little ones um, in the lunch. No, after school, I think it was. And for a while, mm. I went in every week and did a French class. I mean, I, I, I OK, I, I speak. I remember that because you taught us le cochon est sur la table. Well, why don't you steal my punchline? <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. I just had forgotten all about that. No, I I, I mean, I I think I I speak passable French now, but at the time I'm surprised. Anyway, probably I was better than the person who asked me. Um, But I I was going to say that I had this little pink pig, plastic pig, and I used it, as you have so eloquently uh, indicated, to to talk about positioning in in a room, so we put this little pink pig on the table, and yeah, we all we all parroted out the cochon est sur la table, <laughs> which means the the pig is on the table, um, mm. and then I put it underneath, and we all ch- chimed le cochon est sous la table, and the pig is under or <laughs> derrière la table, etc. etc. And I mean, I was very proud of this teaching technique, um, but I it was mentioned to me that somebody had said, that French teacher, he teaches our children phrases they are never going to use, like, the pig <laughs> is on the table. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, Duolingo has got a lot to answer for. I think yeah. they do exactly the same technique. Oh, yeah. No, but, I think it's it's much more important to have something that you can understand and visually see and relate to how it works rather than being like, I don't know, what would you even say about under the table? But that's something. Like... Well, it was it was missing the it was missing the point basically. But exactly. then you know, I I wouldn't I I doubt if any of my students have gone on to a, a, a sparkly career in French. But who knows? Did you get paid to do that? Presumably, I think but... I did. I think mm. I did. I think they all chipped in a sort of a hate near week or something, and I collected the proceeds. <laughs> now I seem to think it was actually quite. Of all the things I did at the time, it was quite lucrative. Well, it wasn't very long. It was half an hour, I think. But I might have come away with six pounds or something. So that's not bad in those days. I think I first played football at primary school. Oh, wow. I remember playing a match with... It was certainly mainly boys. And I think the reason why I remember it is because there was um, a kid in the year below us who was in the match as well. And he did the classic... um, you know, got lightly tapped on a shin by by a passing whiff of wind and, like, fell over, <laughs> grabbing his ankle, rolling around, being like, oh, I'm down, I'm down. I remember thinking at the time, like, this is ridiculous, which mm. I think, particularly because we didn't grow up watching sports, we, mm. you know, now that I've seen many more matches, that's not... not kind of part of it but it's certainly a thing of, of certainly you know, a thing. are they or aren't they as injured as yeah, they might no, be making it's out a thing. and he yeah. was absolutely n- not injured and making a big deal of it, it was very funny well mm. i mean let this podcast be the first use of the word whiffed as opposed to uh, as applied to <laughs> a, something of wind never heard that before Passing a whiff of wind, wind. Yeah. It's, yeah you just made it up i think you almost don't need to specify that it's wind it's like it's a, a whiff is like it's all of the it's all of it included in one one concise word. Well, I've never heard the word before, so I didn't know. So, <laughs> oh, well, now we all know. <laughs> so back to um, back to Lovington Spa, newly married, uh, settling in, and this organisation renamed around this time from Christian Outreach to to Cord. Um, really, for obvious reasons, because I mean, Christian Outreach isn't a very sort of sensible name if you're going to work in areas where people aren't predominantly Christians um, when the work is actually sort of um, uh, philanthropic and humanitarian in, in nature. 
But um, last time we were talking about uh, the, the organisation was basically a refugee group uh, looking after refugees around the world. And last time we talked about Eritrean refugees in the Sudan. And I dropped an Eritrailer, if you remember. Um, I said I would say something more this this time. I wanted to say it last time, but it wasn't the right moment because we got into a light-hearted moment in the podcast. And this is quite a sort of... Well, it's, I want to tell it because it was very poignant for me. It was a very, one, of the, one of four or five striking moments in life, I think. Um, and as you might remember, the, the country had been at war for 30 years, Eritrea I'm talking about now, and the Ethiopians had occupied the country for 30 years. And around 1991, which I talked about last episode, the Ethiopians had won that war. Uh, sorry, the Eritreans had won that war. And the occupying army fled uh, west uh, into Sudan, uh, which ironically was the route that all the refugees had taken when they left Eritrea to to go and camp in the Sudan, which is where our projects have been. So the Ethiopian army retreating in and fleeing uh, took that same route, um, Sudan being uh, just due west of Ethiopia. So um, I think I said to you last time that we happened to be there at the birth of the nation at the, the, at the mm. time when they won that war. And we just took the chance to, to go uh, east. So the army had it retreated west just a, a week or two before and were now in the Sudan along with the refugees, funnily enough, and um, in a different place. And, and we were sort of going in the opposite direction, um, east to west. So we were retracing the same route but in the opposite direction. We didn't know any of this at the time, but that's what had apparently had happened. And that army, as it retreated, um, was marching on foot. And I should think it's probably 150 kilometres. I'm guessing completely, but it's a, long, a longish way. Mm. And it was the, the hot season, a very, very um, height of the, of the hot season. Um, and there was very little water around. And as they, as they fled... Um, imagine demoralised, injured some of them, lost their comrades, um, and uh, their army officers all the time were saying messages were coming through, transport is coming, water is coming, food is coming, and it never did. Um, they were all empty promises because the army was destroyed. The, the, all the, all the, the people with pips on their shoulder had, had disappeared, and this was the, 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 the foot soldiers, if you like, who were... Who were escaping so that had happened about a week and a half before we did our re- trip in the opposite direction to go and uh, visit the capital Asmara which was new liber- newly liberated and on that route uh, is a little was well, a settlement really called uh, Barentu and it's where the road passes through uh, a two sort of hills on either it's like a little mini valley I suppose but very mini uh, and uh, on either side is a hill and the, the army were marching through this or or staggering probably and stumbling through this. And um, when they reached that point, the local Eritrean forces had realised what was happening and they were ambushed uh, at this uh, narrow pass. And the, the Battle of Barentu, there was a previous Battle of Barentu in a previous war several decades before, uh, several, yeah, probably... 100 years before or something um but just the week before we'd done that we did this trip there was a battle on the road that we took and of course there was nobody no emergency services no um system of 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 
um, sorting out the mess that ensued. But there were a lot of fatalities um, because they were sitting targets, really, as they came through the pass, but weakened and uh, dehydrated, um, exhausted. Um, and so what we saw as we drove through was um, the results of very rapid shallow burials of, I should think, probably several hundred people. And um, that particular experience has stayed with me because I remember just driving through and seeing an arm sticking out of the ground at a sort of horrible angle or a foot over here. And, and everywhere there were, there were shoes um, and uh, clothing that I don't know why that was just sort of lying around. And the last thing I want to tell in this story, because it's the thing that sticks with me, is the, the smell of death, uh, which you sometimes get out here, actually, when uh, if an animal has died in a hedgerow or, um, or there's been a, a badger or a, um, a small animal has been hit by a car. And that same smell, sometimes you, you very, very rarely out here, but that was the, was the sort of enduring... Uh, memory of, of passing through that area and seeing the evidence of of what had happened just just a week before and um as i've said before in this podcast it struck me then and it strikes me struck me it strikes me now why do people fight i mean why do people want more fight but we've talked about that before but i wanted to tell you that story because it's it's in a way it's a part of who i am uh because it was one of those very very memorable moments um and makes me think how lucky my generation is, and hopefully your generation never have had, never have having had to fight in a war. Um, and I don't have any idea how I would have responded if I'd been asked to do so, but fortunately I wasn't. So anyway, not a mm. cheerful story, but a powerful one. I think you would agree. Mm. So were you about thirty then, presumably, if it was no. about ninety-one? I would have been just over thirty. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Mm. So around your age, actually, yes. come to think about it. Yeah. And yes. thought about it. So that was the era trailer. But I wanted just to talk a little bit um, or discuss with you a little bit for a moment or two about refugees in general, because it's very, very sort of topical at the moment. I, I heard that a thousand people had crossed the channel um, over the weekend. I don't know if you heard that news um, in small I didn't boats. hear that, but I saw that... Haven't France and the UK come to some agreement about... Just tonight, um, yeah. Is it, yeah, about migrants crossing the channel? I haven't actually mm. read into what it is. No, I mean, it's just very thought-provoking because in the world at the moment, there's very roughly 50 million refugees, if you can believe it. And... Um, uh, Quite surprising, pe- countries are hosting the bulk of that. So Turkey is is host to the biggest number of refugees in any one country, about four million, I think, something like that. And um, and even greater numbers of what are called internally displaced people, people who've because a refugee is somebody who's fleeing a well-founded fear of of war or persecution, and they cross an international boundary, but. But an internally displaced person doesn't have the same sort of rights. They're in the same country, but they've had to leave their particular house or their home or their area, probably for the same reasons, but they just haven't crossed the boundary, so they don't, they don't get noticed. And there's probably a larger number of that, those in the world. Um, but it makes, it makes our sort of uh, problem, if you like, if you want to call it that, of 1,000 or 40,000, I think is the total last year, 
it's a very small number really but it is a it's a it's a very tricky problem because wherever you've got um an uneven world people are going to want to go from a bad place to a better place we'd all be the same but what the solution is i don't know but certainly from the experiences i had um in my working life it's hostility and um you know people talked about turning back boats in the channel we we sh- we should be so much better than that in 2022 i think you'll agree at least yeah definitely i think we don't have any we don't have enough sort of um good infrastructure it feels to to kind of receive refugees because it feels like it feels quite hidden i would say it feels quite like you know you hear about the channel crossings but then in fact, actually, there's a hotel that's near Crystal Palace, which I think is being used to house some refugees. And uh. it's, which is, I think, has been a controversial kind of um, thing for some of the people living locally, because I think people have very kind of different views on what that is and what that means. But it's, I don't know, it just, it feels like it just, it doesn't feel like that's good enough because we need a better way of sort of being able mm. to receive and welcome people into the country and sort of set them up so that they can come and live and not just... Yeah, and also not have to do the dangerous journey. That's yeah. the other thing that... It's crazy, mm-hmm. that. Absolutely which, crazy. Which is like, it's kind of a... It's a question that sort of almost doesn't have an answer in a way because of other problems. Because it's like, if you say, like, France and England working together to stop people from making that crossing, in on one hand is good because people mm. won't make the crossing and therefore won't be at risk of all the things that that's risky for in terms of how dangerous that actual crossing is. But then what happens to those people that are stopped from crossing? Are they going to be looked after properly? Are they going to be... Um, and would they have been looked after properly if they'd come here anyway? So What is needed is, is sort of safe passages and safe travel routes for people who are genuine refugees. And I mean, I, I can't understand why there aren't processing centres on the north coast of France, you know, in, in the main cities and towns from the british government you know to to process applications before they travel and then if mm. if they're eligible you know here's a ferry ticket you know get on a ferry mm. and um but the the trouble is people are fear you know the thing about the crystal palace hotel and similar things happened here in france because uh, when the calais jungle um which tells you you know in fact it was called a jungle tells you something that was the big refugee encampment at calais when that was dismantled, they redistributed the people around France. And uh, Rufek, which is quite near to us here, um, had 40 uh, young African men uh, suddenly arrived in the town. And, I mean, I've worked with young Afri- African men f- for a lot of my life. And, um, in fact, some of them come from the towns in Sudan that I visited and know. Hmm. Um, mm. But So I'm not, I'm not afraid of them. And why would I be? They're just young African men. But there, is in, there was enormous fear in Rufek um, of this large group of young men arriving. Um, and it was fear of the unknown. You know, it was fear of something that's different. And I suppose we're all a bit like that. Um, but we, we did a concert, our choir did a concert to raise money for them. Um, and in that concert, which was... <laughs> we rural France, the auditorium was all white people, uh, mostly grey-haired white people. Uh, a good number turnout um, to, to, to hear the, 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 the pieces that our choir was singing. And it was a good evening. 
But what was very amazing was sort of towards the end of it, the door opened and all these, well, most of these 40 young men all trooped in and sat in the, in the rows at the back to, to listen to the mm. last few. And, uh, and that's where I discovered that, that I knew some of the places that they'd come from and, and could, mm. could greet them in their language, for example, which was... Wow, yeah, that must have been cool. amazing for them. To... Yeah. Uh, well, there was one chap who, who, he comes from this place which nobody has ever heard of, except I've been there sort of thing. It's just, it just totally, <laughs> totally ridiculous. <laughs> So, Are they still living there? Uh, I I don't know the answer to that. You used to see them sort of congregating around the Wi-Fi spots in the town. I haven't seen that recently. But hopefully that just means they might be more settled with perhaps jobs and places to live that are, are separate. I'm not sure. Because um, in France, is there any sort of... like Is there like a social worker or someone who's kind of assigned to them to kind of help them understand yeah. how to integrate... There yes, is. there is. Oh, there is. And of course, most of them have got to learn French because they come yeah. from countries, for the most part, that aren't French speaking. So um, the, like the Sudanese, for example, the Eritreans were there as well, um, Pakistan. And so that, so one of our friends does uh, weekly co- uh, sort of sessions for, for those guys to, to help them learn French. Um, but yeah, That's I mean, it's a, it is good. And I mean, we just have to continually remind people that human beings who are on their beam ends need help. It doesn't matter who they are and where they are. They just, they need to be helped. Because also, if you take a second to think about what sort of things might make you need to leave your home and not return to it, you're, you're just like, it has, it's got to be an awful, awful situation to make you do those sorts of journeys and cross those borders and come and live in a place where you don't know the language and you don't know the people. The, it, it, the, the idea that anyone's doing it for any reason other than they absolutely have to. Well, that that's true for the most part, although the the sort of news story here, or there, I should say, in the UK at the moment, is that a large majority, I think, of those 40,000 who've come across the channel this year are from Albania, where there isn't really um, a push factor, there isn't really a war, there isn't really... I mean, it's a... I, I believe it's a country that isn't very prosperous, um, but those people, by and large, are making a choice to, to take a risk. So, so it's complicated. Nothing is straightforward in life, in case I haven't taught you anything in over the years. Nothing is straightforward. Hmm. So I feel very privileged to have spent quite a lot of time um, knocking around with people, but I wanted to just um, perhaps mention the beginning of our, my trip to Thailand. We've talked about Thailand before, but... Um, what the dear listener won't know, and you may or may not know, is that a year into uh, living in Leamington, um, we because we had this big project there with Cambodian refugees now um, on the border with with Cambodia, and uh, in in Thailand, and um, that was a big prog- program. It's about half a million dollars, I think. Which in I don't know that might be two or three million dollars now. Um, certainly a lot more than that. And it was all sorts of, of, of activities to support the refugees, healthcare, um, housing, water supply and that sort of thing. And um, we had a team of nurses and, and engineers and a director. And at this particular point, the director um, uh, had come to the end of his contract and we recruited a new one. And there was a six week gap between the last date that the outgoing director could stay to and before the new one could could go. So the six week gap needed to be plugged by somebody competent, able, experienced, fluent in the local language, mm-hmm. 
we couldn't find anyone like that. So uh, I was uh, asked if I would go. Now, uh, I, I was by then sort of, I think following my Zambia experience, I was much more kind of, well, what's the worst that can happen? You know, <laughs> well, actually, in this case, there's some quite bad things that could have happened. But anyway, I, I, I was sent out for six weeks to, uh, to, to hold this programme together, really, um, without having much of a clue of what I was doing. I was on the way to Thailand on Pakistan Airways and arrived um, uh, for my six-week stint. The minute I landed in Bangkok, uh, the director we had recruited uh, to come and take over uh, got in touch with the office to say he'd changed his mind and didn't want the job anymore. <laughs> so well, uh, the, the new person. So the the six new weeks person became infinity. <laughs> well, as you might guess, it takes a while to recruit somebody into a position like that. Um, and uh, we had discussed between ourselves whether much should come out with me, but she had just started this course, which I know we've talked about before, typing and, um, and shorthand. So she stayed at home to carry on with the course. Um, but if we'd known it would be six months, which is what it ended up turning mm. out to be, um. we, we might have thought differently about that. But fortunately... Um, you know, it's a bit like, apparently, and this is, I don't know if this is true or not, if you, I mean, no one should ever do this, but if you did, <laughs> drop, drop a frog into hot water, boiling water, it would jump out. Um, but if you put it into cold water and heat it up, it, it stays there until it dies. Now, this is a terrible illustration, but anyway, um, what, I'm trying to, <laughs> what I'm trying to say is that um, the, six, the six months, if I'd known that at the beginning, I'd have jumped out basically mm. and, and not yeah. gone yeah, but, but it was sort of little by little it kept getting extended a bit and I, so I yeah. stayed there till I died basically <laughs> well it's a bit like uh, a bit like the old um, pandemic lockdowns wasn't it it was three weeks they told us yeah oh yeah and three 100%. weeks then turned into six weeks and six weeks turned into we've been oh, yeah. told three years yeah can yes, you imagine goodness can you I imagine? actually remember reading something uh, sort of fairly early on that said you know we won't be out of this it'll be at least like two or three years I remember thinking it can't be. And mm. then now look at us. We're sort of nearly still, three years on. Still yeah. Anyway. Uh, anyway, so I, we decided to stick with it. And Mutz was able to come out a couple of times. Um, once at the Christmas. And then the second time she stayed out until I, I came back. And we came back together. But um, and on the, the first of those trips when she came out. Um, uh, she came out for 10 days, I think. And on the, the flight back... Um, had been overbooked and uh, when we went to check in they said there's probably isn't space for you on on the flight and we didn't know what to think about that because on the one hand if she couldn't travel that was exciting because she could stay with me but on the other hand she had stuff to get back to and and you were were at the airport and this is real high high tension Um, there were perhaps four or five passengers who weren't who were who were over over the uh, payload of the aircraft and all sorts of different people travelling, and some were going to Pakistan. It was the it was the plane going to Pakistan, the first leg, that was overbooked. And I can remember it now. I was sitting there in this uh, in this airport, I think towards the end of the, you know, fairly late at night, and wondering what was going to happen. And they said, um, "Just wait, just wait, just wait." And then um, they came and said that one of the business class passengers hadn't arrived for that flight, and they were closing it. So they'd lost their seat, even if they turned up now. So there was one seat available um, for these six passengers, and it was business class. It was pis- so, who wants it? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, everyone wanted it. It was the case Obviously. of who was going to yeah. get it. So, um, yeah. 
So, I mean, most of those people would have sat in the toilet on the toilet if they could have got the seat to travel, you know, because there was all, everyone wanted to travel. Anyway, they went and I don't know how they decided, but they came back with a piece of paper and they said, um, this last seat is going to uh, Mrs. Clark. <laughs> so, so she got she got on the plane oh, and travelled really? business class. Wow! Which, and, and and you know because it was the very last minute because they'd held it until that chat till they closed mm. the flight. Suddenly she Didn't was gone. Get to say goodbye. She was yeah. gone, and I was I was there, and she who knows what was going on in her head. But it was one of the very very muddly things. Um, I wonder if it was taken into account the fact that she had an onward flight so that, like, in terms of compensating probably. the people who couldn't fly, mm. they would have to do her onward flight as well. It will have been something like that. Can you remind me where we are in the timeline of life? Yeah, before your, before your time. Before so this, is, this is 1988, or 1987, actually, um, thinking right. about it. So, so disappearing for six months seems slightly more reasonable than if Mats was at home caring for two young children. Yes, exactly. Yeah. No, and, uh, you know, she, she did good work. She got on, on with the kind of um, renovation of the house that we were living in and mm. got herself qualified, which she's now, even now today, earning money from, really, all the skills mm. that she, she picked up then. Um, yeah, good old Mats. But, the, I mean, that, that, that took me to... Um, uh, the six months period in Thailand, and I've mentioned it before, but um, in the next um, Thai trailer, that doesn't work, does it really? Um, <laughs> it's not as good as there a trailer. <laughs> no, the, the the next podcast, I'll just highlight one or two anecdotes from the the time in our of our of our trip to Thailand, except to say um, that it was way 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 beyond anything I had ever experienced that I was really was capable of um, or equipped for, but it sort of formed very much of who I am today I think because I just realized um how the world works because I was I was operating at very high level really an example of that is um the border area is was a very insecure area and uh, so there was a lot of military supervision there and and it, the the chief, chief of all of that was air vice chief marshal Tuantong and I can remember his name now um and <laughs> and I never met him apart from his daughter got married, which I'm sure you'll be delighted to hear. And um, <laughs> uh, so because of the sort of ridiculous setup, um, I got invited to her wedding because I was representing the organisation that was working on the border that he was responsible for, if you see mm-hmm. what I mean. So I was one of those people who gets invited to an ed- a wedding that the couple really don't want to be there. But anyway, it was, I mean, the, the, there were probably... <laughs> There might have been 600 people. There was a huge number of people. And what I can remember about it is this vast um, hall uh, full of the great and the good of Thai society, including me. And it was the first time I'd ever come across, heard of, seen, experienced or known about ice statues. I mean, (laughs) I think they're probably more of a thing now, but I couldn't believe that there was a dolphin on each table made of ice. And how does that? And it was, <laughs> and, you know, gradually during the evening, they, they drip away or swim away or float away or something. Um, but anyway, I like the idea they're more of a thing now. Like, um, oh, yeah, we get one of those each week. Of course. <laughs> Can't, but have you come across them? You've got a nice dolphin. Not in real life. No, I've, no, never, okay. I, I've heard of them before. So I know, I know what you're talking yeah. about. But I feel like that's maybe from films. We had a, um, a vodka luge at... Um, one of our sort of graduation parties at university, which what is... What is a vodka uh, luge? Is that like a viaduct that you pour? 
Yeah, it's a nice statue that has like a sort of hole through it that you pour vodka into, so it kind of chills it as it runs through the thing, and then you drink it on the other end. That's fun. It's very ridiculous. How does it pour continuously? I mean, what happens to it if you? Oh don't no, I think some. Well, you, in the one we had, I think someone had to like pour the shots in. That's pretty. That's pretty fancy for. I mean, the fact that it's vodka makes it not sound that fancy, but like that sounds Depends pretty fancy for a graduation. Oh, well, uh, no, totally. But I think in the context of a university um, back, well, I backdrop. Well, <laughs> I think there was, I think, if I remember rightly, there was basically the money to do one fancy thing. And, and so, like, one year it was fireworks. One year, mm. this was just for the drama department. It wasn't the whole university graduation. Mm. Um, yeah, one year it was a vodka luge. Who and knows what else I think I mentioned Vodka Luge, name of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. It might give a slight missing, but slight miss, tra- yeah. trade descriptions up. Anyway, um, if it gets us listeners, who cares? Um, and I think I might have just in sort of winding up. I think I might have mentioned before about the chap I took over from in Thailand, who who was this um, very sort of tall, good-looking, very very capable man. He was wasn't much older than me actually, similar age, if not the same, but. Um, I just felt very, very incapable because he seemed so capable and everyone knew him. He'd been in Thailand for years and he was well respected. And he was the one who, who drove me to the airport because he didn't trust me. to. Do- he, he All the time I was there for the handover, he drove everywhere and he even drove himself to the <laughs> airport and handed me the keys as he got on the plane because uh, he didn't really trust me to drive in Bangkok. But I've, I think I've told that before. But why I'm mentioning it now is that um, by a curious... I've not had any contact with him since 1987... Was that 40 years? Nearly. And by a strange sort of connection, um, which I won't bore you with now, uh, I was in touch with him through Facebook. um, And uh, we had a little exchange and I felt sort of more or less obliged to say um, something along the lines of, I don't know what you thought you were handing over to, but it turned out not too bad in the end. And basically he said, well, we were all young and none, nobody knew, none of us knew what we were doing in those days. And it was, for me, it was kind of like um, a 40-year thing that got released, if you can imagine mm. that, because yeah. I've been living under this imagination that he was sort of uh, looking down on me from above and he wasn't at all, actually. So it's all in your head, it turns out. It is all in mm. your head. Mm. Excellent. He was faking it till he made it, just like the rest of us. Well, that, yeah, uh, that is pretty much what I learned in Thailand. Um, I mean, uh, uh, apart from the meeting of heads of agencies, which was very hot and very long and very dull, when I actually fell asleep and woke up to hear the chairman say, well, let's ask Mr. Clark about that. Because it, was, <laughs> it, was, it was some some sort of subject that our agency was responsible for. <laughs> apart from that, I, I did as much a good a job of faking it as anyone else, I'm sure, really. <laughs> and that, dear listener, is your lot for this time. So I hope you've enjoyed it and learned mm. something. Uh, it's great to, to discuss it all with you, though, you two. Excellent. Another good round of Stevie stories. And join us next month for episode 20. 20. Wow, it's all grown up. Can you believe it? All grown up. It's a university. Podcast is turning 20. I've just turned 30. I had to slip it in because we haven't discussed my date of birth in a long time. Oh. I felt like we need to remind everybody that it was 1992 (laughs) and the year being 2022 means... um, (laughs) It's a thread we we lost. Oh, well, I'm glad it's been rewoven in. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode and we will look forward to seeing you next time. It's a goodbye from me. It's a goodbye from me. And a very goodbye from me.
Bye. Bye.